0: It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's Rock and Mike And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on The Rock Show Ooh, yeah, on The Rock Show Hello, people, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Rock Show 116. And we talk about the cast. If you like anti social, anti establishment, anti no government, this is the group for you. And today (laughs) I'd like to introduce the the most demand with the knowledge, the guy that can tell you what's going on with these people Rock and Mike. Rock and Mike, take over, baby. This is your show.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Rock Show podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking about the band Crass today. Okay, Crass, very good. Crass, yes. Um, Very, you know, punk rock when it started in the '70s in England uh, was always political. Starting with the Clash and other bands that talked about. Sex Pistols talked about what was going on in society at that time. Um, It was different than the scene over here in New York or in L.A. Very different. Okay. Um, but these guys took it a whole different step. Oh, like yes. Yeah. No, no. They like- they, they, like, they took what the Clash was trying to do and just, like, turned it upside down into something totally, totally different. Um, basically, they were anarchists. Oh, okay. Totally. And, and, and in, in those days, in the late 70s, early 80s in England, uh, punk rock, as it got closer to the 80s, um, started to fracture off into different kind of subgenres, and one of the subgenres was the anarcho punk movement, and they basically started that okay them and a, a couple other bands that used to play with them um and the media at the time uh, you remember Margaret Thatcher yeah, okay the prime minister um the media at the time what they did was kind of very similar to what you're seeing now in America, they divided everybody in England. And people, I think it's worse here, but that's a whole other topic. But um, I think that people basically took sides. They said, okay, we're gonna be socialists or we're gonna be Nazis, okay? And you had people at crash shows that were from both sides. And then you had people down the middle that were not for either. So it, you know, it led to some real crazy shows. Um, they were
0: talking about getting attacked on stage and all kinds of things. Right? They did. They
1: made. did. There were riots. There were all kinds of things that happened. Uh, the interesting thing is, they never made a dime. Yeah, even the merchandise,
0: man. They had that nah. shirt. You, they showed. They showed Beckham wearing the that shirt with the the clock. Dude, they didn't make a time i these guys these guys actually
1: yeah i'll go i'll go into what the logo is it's not a clock it's a it's a mix of a couple of different things i'll go into it but let me just jump in and and we'll start talking about this band because it's really interesting now they were an english punk band that formed in the epping essex area of england in 1977 they promoted anarchism right off the bat okay and they believed it to be a political ideology they believed it to be a way of life. And basically a form of resistance against the government. But now, they, they,
0: they, they were teaching people to sustain themselves, how to dip themselves, grow their own stuff, do all yes,
1: the stuff. yes. They, they they had a um a, 60s a hippie hippie mentality, almost like a commune. Not quite, okay. They yeah, totally I had I a commune like that. Well <laughs> well, Penny, well Penny Rimbaud, who we'll talk about, he, he didn't like calling it a commune, so I won't call it that. But it was more like a place that you could crash if you needed to crash. Yeah, it was you could stay for a couple of days.
0: But you, you would have your, to
1: work. But you would cook your food and all that stuff. But they didn't have like a collective. It wasn't about politics necessarily no. to be there. It was almost like if you were on the road, walking down the road to the next town, you wanted to come in for a few hours and hang out with them, you could. Yeah. Okay? Now, now, eventually, uh. Crass, like I said, they popularized what became known as the anarcho-punk movement, which was a subculture of straight-ahead punk rock. It emphasized anarchy, but also animal rights, feminism, anti-fascism, and environmentalism. The band utilized what was called a DIY ethic, which is do-it-yourself, DIY. Do-it-yourself. Okay. Okay. to all of its albums were DIY. Uh, the sound collages they used to use on stage, the leaflets they would print up and hand out at shows, uh, films they would use as backdrops. Yeah, playing they would play in front of a screen. Uh, I kind
0: of love the one they just reading something, this music playing in the background, like the girl was reading. Whoever, I yeah, them. they used
1: they used all kinds of uh, performance art. I mean, poetry was a big thing okay Uh, i never heard of this until now what's art punk they call it art punk yeah it it, well someone came up with that title i don't know i mean i
0: i I, I never heard i don't i don't know
1: i've heard it i've heard it i don't know exactly what it is there's a lot of labels for these things okay but it just you know uh people used to say patty smith was arty
0: oh she was definitely you know screaming out and she's almost Like, the girl, he almost sounded like Patti Smith, the one that was talking, that's playing music in the background, and she's just talking about issues. It's like, what the fuck? You're probably talking about
1: Eve Libertine. Yeah. Okay. The the female singer. Yeah. And she's still around. She still does things here and there. But um, another thing Crass was very involved with was the um, stenciled graffiti scene. Okay. Oh, the graffiti Uh, guys. They they, they spray-painted messages using stencils. Um, all over the subway system in London, uh, also on billboards, advertising billboards where they could, um, one other thing they were involved with was, was organizing squats for people to stay for free. Okay. In locations that weren't being used, empty apartment buildings, things like that, empty clubs, they would turn into squats. Um, they were known for always wearing black. They wore black all the time on stage or off. OK, and their icon that you mentioned kind of look like a clock. It's really a cross between a Christian cross, a swastika, a union jack and a symbol for power eating itself. Because if you look at it, there's two, there's two heads of a snake and it, it eats either side. OK, so that represents power eating itself. To me, it now, looks the, like a clock. <laughs> yeah, I, I know why you say that, but if you look close, it's a mix of these other things, especially a swastika and a cross. Mike, now, can you believe they make a
0: dime on merchandise with that? People were just putting it out because it was a cool thing to put out and they just sold
1: it. You know, they they were a little naive. They put out records uh, on their own label and they yeah. they, 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 they didn't. They wanted to charge a lower price than anybody else. So on their records, it used to say, sell no less than, and then there would be a a price depending on what it was. Okay. So they undercut everybody by like 50%. And they also never, uh, the business end of it, they didn't really handle that well. Uh, The tax end of it and all that stuff. And they ended up (laughs) owing money and things like that. But we'll get into that now. The band was organized and always based around, we call it a commune-type house, owned by the avant-garde artist and musician Penny Rimbaud. Uh like, Penny you Rimbaud. see that? That's the yes. thing I was talking about. Yes, that's their symbol. Yes. That's one of the most popular punk rock icons. I've seen that patch on patches. I've seen it on tattoos. I've seen it on the back of people's jackets. It's for the last forty years. That's as popular as uh, the Ramones' eagle, or uh, the Yankee you know, symbol. The Yankee symbol of punk rock, in a way, you know. Um, now, Penny Rimbaud, it, it was the drummer to uh, to Crass. Okay, but before Crass, he lived in Dial House, which was the the sixteenth century cottage that was this kind of commune. Okay uh basically it was a rural area called Epping and in, in the Essex area of England um, it was really more of an open house than a commute but dial house was a place where where passersby could come in stay for as long as they wanted uh, as long as they 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 had some strict rules uh, they didn't allow any serious drug taking okay you could smoke weed, smoke cigarettes. But you, you couldn't do serious drugs. Uh you could drink. Okay. But, you know, it, it, it was like you couldn't just make it, it wasn't just a party house where anything went. Yeah. But you were you were allowed to come in, the door was unlocked, and, and as the band got more popular, fans would would make their way there. And they and they hung out with them. And it, you know, it's really a very unique kind of situation that doesn't happen too much in music. Um Penny Rimbaud was previously in a performance art group called Exit. And he was involved in the early 70s in um, the Stonehenge Free Festival shows. This is before punk, okay? Um, He was also a writer, a poet. He was working on something in the mid-70s called Reality Asylum, okay? It was a book that he was working on for a long time, and it would become part of the whole Crest thing eventually. Now, he met... A guy. Well, the guy actually came. It was a guy from the nape from the neighborhood that stayed in Dial House, and he was a big fan of the Clash. He had gone to London to see the Clash and was just blown away by it. His name, his stage name, became Steve Ignorant. Great name. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, Ignorant, like I said, was moved recently by the Clash and wanted to start a new band. He wanted to start a punk band, and 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 Penny basically said. I play drums. I could. I could do this with you if you like. So what they started was this two-piece: Steve singing, Penny playing. Penny is a man. Just so we get that straight. Penny Rimbaud is actually a a guy. Um, With just a two-piece: a drummer and a singer. Okay, and they would play in public places and stuff around the area. It's uh, a little bit like white stripe. Well, white, yeah, but no, no guitar. No guitar and a singer. Okay, and. Oh, they were originally calling themselves Stormtrooper. yeah, which, I saw that. you know, which kind of has like you know different kind of connotations to it. Um, they had early versions of Crass songs already written when they were Stormtrooper, like the song "So what? the yeah. song do do they owe us a living?" My their-
0: question, yeah. was that the style of almost like slam poetry way? Because it was always like a drummer, somebody talking poetry. That was the origins of slam poetry, right?
1: Slam poetry. I'm not familiar with that. What do you
0: mean? But it's important, somebody's hitting a drum and people just spitting out words.
1: Nah, you know what? That goes back to the to the to the beat poets in the fifties. But I mean, that's almost like the strong trooper. That's what it reminded me of. Oh well yeah. I mean it was yeah, it was it was a simple hard attack, him playing drums, Steve screaming these words. okay, so yeah. It was, it was almost in the sense of, of the beat poets in the 50s and early 60s yeah. that would play bongos and then say a couple of lines of a poem exactly. and play You're bongos. Exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. Yeah, it was kind of similar. I didn't even think of that, but it's true. Um yeah. They had to change their name because Stormtrooper really kind of brought up a whole Nazi thing, so they didn't like that. They Star ended up Wars. changing <laughs> – Well, yeah, it could have been that too. It came out in 77. Now – Bowie, uh, David Bowie, in the song Ziggy, "Ziggy Stardust," the the title track to the album, yeah. Uh, there's a line where he says, "The kids are just crass," right? Okay? Yeah. Okay, and that's how they got the name. Okay, from from that. So, what happened is other friends start and people in the household kind of started to join up with the band. Yeah. All right, there was a woman named G. Voucher. Okay, Pete Wright uh, was on bass. Uh, rhythm guitar was played by N.A. Palmer. And you had Steve Herman on lead guitar, all right? Um, that was the original lineup. Now, G. Voucher was more of a uh, a performance artist. She would design the collages that would be behind them. Uh, she would be involved with getting them to the United States. And record covers, t- right? She did and, a lot of the record covers? Yeah, yeah. She was involved with that. Um, If there was film collages that they would have playing behind them on a screen, she did that stuff. So um, their first gig was at a street festival in North London. And they planned on doing about five songs, but the plug got pulled on them after three. And guitarist Steve Herman left the band at that point and got replaced by Phil Clancy, who was known then as Phil Free. Phil Free so feel free. And, Right. And they had added two female singers, Joy De Vivere, De Vere, okay, DeVivere, which Joy of Life, okay, yeah. and Eve, Eve Libertine, okay, joined up too. So you had quite a few people in this band. Not every song had everybody in it. Nah, um, yeah, it would be weird.
0: They all went know, different.
1: It, later on, you know, they had times when they, they – yeah, they had times where they were just using the female vocals – and Steve Ignorant had a step aside. We'll talk about that. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of a really like a, a performance art thing done in punk rock, which which really hadn't been done before. Now, in the summer of 77, through American Connections that G Voucher had, the band played four gigs in New York City. They played two gigs in the East Village Puerto Rican Club and also in the East Village Polish Club. Okay, probably I'm I, I'm trying to wonder if that was like on Second Avenue, maybe. I think that's uh, the like Puerto Rico is just on the barry. That's a place that have been there forever. That Rico. Yeah, that might be that. The Polish club might be on Second Avenue. I'm thinking by the Ukrainian yeah. club somewhere over there. Um, but they didn't play CBGBs, believe it or not. And they were very excited to come to New York. They didn't get a gig at CBGBs, but they they hung out there one night. And they were actually disgusted as to how it looked. <laughs> they, could, they couldn't believe, like, the Ramones and stuff came out of there. It's such a shithole, you know. But uh, they ended up playing early gigs in England also uh, with the punk band, the UK Subs. They were very oh, close yeah. with UK them. UK Subs is a great band. They are. And um, they, they played places like the White Lion, uh, a place called Putney, place called Action Space, all in central London. They're probably like bars, bars that had, you know, bands play on stage. Uh, most of the early shows didn't have a lot of people there. Uh, it was kind of like if they played with the UK subs, they had their fans and Kress had their few fans. And that was that was about it. It wasn't like they were playing in front of hundreds of people. So they ended up playing two gigs at the Roxy Club in London. And the band arrived drunk for the second show. Yep, they were lumped up, okay? And they ended up getting thrown out. All right, they were too fucked up to play. They got thrown out. So this inspired the song Band from the Roxy. Uh, (laughs) Great, great fucking song. And also, uh, Rimbaud's essay for Chris, they had a a, a self-published magazine called International Anthem. And uh, he wrote uh, like an essay called "Crass at the Roxy" about the whole thing. So they were, you know, they were doing their own kind of fanzine as well too. And after this incident, the band started to take themselves seriously. There they was no more getting lumped up uh, before shows. They might have a couple of drinks, but they would avoid alcohol for the most part. They didn't smoke weed at all anymore before the shows. Um, they also adopted wearing the all-black attire that they got from military surplus stores, Army, Navy stores, stuff like that. Mike,
0: I, and, I hate to tell you, but these guys will be like the Black Lives right now, those activists. They will be on tea for these guys, technically, in a way. You
1: know, I, I, I've I, I've been thinking about that, okay? And I, I don't know, because I feel like they didn't this, want to be part- this is totally
0: Antifa, dude. Give me a break. This is Antifa.
1: Look I hear you because of the black and wearing yeah. that stuff. No, you're right. The look is the same. Okay. And that could be a very uh intimidating look. And that's why groups like Antifa do it. I don't think Crass okay. wanted to look intimidating. I think they wanted to look the way they wanted to look. I don't think it was like I want to go out and scare people and be militant. They had a poli- they had a policy that they believed that they wanted to put out there, but yeah. it was a, it was peaceful it, it was, was peaceful. peaceful all right so it wasn't about bashing heads and fighting people and you know anarchy in that sense. I think what they believed in, especially penny, uh, maybe Eve libertine as well is is kind of like a personal. Anarchy. This is just my opinion, all right. Just from what I get, from what I knew of them back in the day, and but he was anti-establishment, hundred percent anti-establishment, anti-establishment. But like, you know, in a sense that that no, we don't need anything. We could take care of ourselves. Almost a almost almost a libertarian kind of mentality, which I can relate to self-preservation, almost kind of. Now, uh, just get off topic for one second. I, I was I first heard about this band in the 80s uh there used to be a magazine called maximum rock and roll and yes. it was a punk magazine it was a, almost like a newspaper it was black and white and it came out once a month and i used to you know make my way over to tower records on fourth street and buy it or sometimes over at c and here on sixth street remember that that magazine store uh they they uh they always had it and it would cost like i think it was like two dollars it was cheap. Yeah. And uh, they were really the only way that you could find out about this band.
0: They were yeah. the most
1: mysterious band at the time and and I knew people I kind of flirted with the whole anarcho punk thing in the late eighties uh mid mid to late eighties when I was like seventeen eighteen um it it it, it I was attracted to it. There were bands in the New York City area that were down with what Crass was doing. Crass had actually already broken up. Okay, but the they were fans and they were trying to keep it going. Were we you was think bad
0: brains were a fan of them?
1: No. No. Bad brains yep. were rust bad brains were rustified.
0: That's what i mean like but they were also kind of anti establishment they,
1: they might have they might have been fans but they weren't promoting the same the same thing, <laughs> um, the they, same they, thing. they they were they were when was you a look at the of,
0: drawing with the
1: lightning hitting the <laughs> well yeah that's anti establishment <laughs> too i mean, they, yeah, that's what related, I mean. They, might, they might have related to Crass on some level but they were mostly yeah. about they were mostly about promoting rasta okay yes but there were some bands in the New York City area uh, that were part of the so-called peace punk movement. And I kind of flirted with this in my late teens. Um, I knew some people into I went to a few shows. There was a band called Nausea. And it was, there was a band called Apple. And they it was spelled A dot P dot P dot L dot E dot. and it's, wow. it's, It stood for something. It was like anarcho, peace punk kind of thing. I forget what it stood for. But This was part of a peace punk movement that was in the city. These guys, you know, they put out their own albums. They didn't make any money. It was all like a hippie punk kind of movement. Now, but what I didn't like about it is it was really more about they didn't have any, for me, they didn't have the solutions that I was looking for. So I, you know, I flirted with it, but I liked the music, but I didn't get into the whole scene too much. Okay. I wanted to, but it just, I, I could never go all the way because it just didn't make sense because these people were kind of like stupid, really. They really <laughs> were. Okay. But anyway, anyway. Well, that I, let's get back, to, that. That's let's get, let's get back to, we'll get back to Kress. Now, Penny Rimbaud's uh, friend, a guy named David King, would soon de- design the logo, the famous Crass logo you, you just showed. Uh, It it was a combination of the Christian cross, the swastika, the Union Jack, and a two-headed serpent called Ouroboros, okay, which represents power eating itself. Yeah. Uh, they, They used this logo as a huge backdrop when they played on stage, and it gave the band a very militaristic image, which kind of often confused concert goers that the band might be actually fascist. Okay, because yeah. they had a militaristic look, but they were they were the opposite of that. They the, the, the reputation for being fascists would kind of plague them for their career. OK, and but, you know, Pen, Penny liked the whole idea of contradictions. OK, I uh, really a crash show was a barrage of contradictions. You had very heavy punk rock, hardcore punk rock. Okay. Coming at you loud, fast, but the lyrics were all about peace and love. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 you know, they dressed like what would become Antifa, but these were like, you know, black military surplus clothes, like, like military, militaristic looking fascist looking. Okay. But they promoted a pacifist message. So you had a lot of contradictions at once. And Penny, like that, because he wanted people to just figure out for themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Now, live shows in general were pretty simple. Um, The band preferred to play using 40-watt household light bulbs. Uh, They didn't have a a lot of lights on them. Uh, It made the band very difficult to film, which is a reason why there isn't that many... Uh, clips of them playing. There isn't. There's very few. Okay, um, but G Voucher and a friend named Mick Duffield created these video collages and films that were back projected, okay, onto a screen in front of the, behind the band. Uh, leaflets about oh, it could be anything about uh, politics. They were very much against Thatcher. Yeah. Um, they they basically uh would talk about feminism, animal rights, all different types of topics. A lot they of would stuff. print Yeah, they would print leaflets up about that to inform the people. Uh almost always of some kind of political nature the leaflets that were handed out. Now, in 1978, they started recording what would become their first album called The Feeding of the 5000. It's now, a a I I think album. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it. It's great. I think it's in the. You know, it's in the top twenty best punk albums ever. Okay, uh, there's just nothing as raw.
0: You actually sent it to me last night. And I was all lumped up after the vaccine, and I heard it today. Let me tell you, that album might be one of the best punk albums I heard in the like last ten years. It was fantastic.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I know you mentioned to me when we were talking about doing this that you never heard of this band. I never heard of them. Like, okay. This is like- yeah, yeah, uh, and that's understandable. They didn't play here. Okay, they they really didn't come here, and they weren't part of the even mainstream, if you want to call it that, punk scene that we knew about. Yeah. Back in you know that was more like the Ramones and things like that. They weren't part of that. Okay, they were like a subgenre. Yeah. A, they were like a they were like a movement. They were like a symbol of a movement that was going on that was mostly in England. Uh but you know, I think this album is even like some of the stuff they talk about applies to today. Yeah, it still applies to today, you know. Yeah, yeah. now it's a, it was an 18 track 12-inch like a record, but you played it on 45.
0: I thought it was amazing too. That whole explanation that it was, uh, that was incredible that they did that.
1: Yeah, well, they they put it out on a label called Small Wonder, and when it came time to press the record, there was an Irish company that was doing this for Small Wonder, and they refused to do it because there's a song called Asylum that was going to be the very first song on it. It's not a song; it's a Spoken yeah. word thing, okay. And basically, the whole song is is uh, Eve libertine bashing Jesus Christ. Okay, they were very anti religion. Yeah, crass. Okay, especially anti Christianity, uh, which I think would rub people the wrong way a lot of yeah. times. Now the record would uh, get released, but they had to take Asylum off. The record, <laughs> and it, 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 it was it, unbelievable. It, <laughs> yeah, they put in its place a two-minute recording of nothing, and
0: <laughs> it was, and the it was called freedom, the, freedom the, sound,
1: the, the, the sound of free speech. The sound <laughs> of free speech, right? It's amazing. So that that's great. Okay, and uh, this, this incident prompted Crass to kind of go out and start their own label, which they did, called Crass Records. And it allowed them to retain any, you know, content control of any of the material that they wanted to put out. So soon after, um, an extended version of the song Asylum, renamed Reality Asylum, was released as a seven-inch single. And Crass would be investigated by the police due to the lyrics, okay, the words of the song. Now, the band got interviewed at their house, the cottage, Dial House, okay, where they all lived. Yeah. And they were interviewed by Scotland Yard. That's how serious it was. Yeah, okay? that's very really serious. At, yeah, at the Scotland Yard vice squad, okay. And they were threatened with prosecution, but it, it never happened. It was just a, a lot of talk, okay. Yeah, it was dropped. So, the case was dropped. Yeah, it ended up being dropped. Now, the single reality asylum only cost fans Forty-five pence, okay, which is not a lot of money. Most most singles were uh, nine were about nine pence, ninety pence, and that's that. Right, that started their pay no more than policy, like I described before. Like it would say pay no more than this, okay. So the band, however, when they did this, they didn't factor in the value-added taxes and stuff that. Are in Europe that you have to add in and they ended up losing money on every copy that was sold. Okay. Yeah. And a year later in 1979, Crass records released a new pressing of the feeding of the 5,000 with the subtitle, the second sitting and the asylum was restored back on the album. They took the, the sound of free speech off and put that on. So in 79, um, They also released the album Stations of the Crass, which was actually financed by the the Poison Girls, a band they regularly played with. It was a double album with three sides of new music, and the fourth side was recorded live at the Pied Bull in Islington, a bar that's over there. Now, the next crass single was 1980's Bloody Revolutions. It was a benefit release with Poison Girls on the flip side, And it raised 20,000 pounds to fund the whopping autonomy, Autonomy, I'm sorry, autonomy center, which was an anarchist center that they were involved in. Um, It was a place where anarchists could meet safely and talk and discuss things. Uh, The words to Bloody Revolutions were kind of a critique of the anarcho-pacifist perspective. Okay, where they viewed Marxists on the left, and then the way they viewed the Nazis on the right, which would be kind of like the uh, the National Front it was called in England, were were were, were Nazis. Uh, I think there was something called the British Movement or something like that. That was the same kind of thing, and they had problems at shows with these with these people showing up. Okay, in fact, there was a a show at a place called Conway Hall in London's Red Lion Square. And yep. during the show, the Socialist Workers Party supporters attacked neo-Nazis at the gig, and it resulted in a big riot. The band was attacked and everything. And uh, after that, melee, Crass accused organizations such as Rock Against Racism as polarizing, making, it polarize, making people pick sides between left and right. And that was wrong, okay? They felt that was wrong. Now, they blamed a lot of the leftists for that particular concert because they attacked the the other people that were there. Uh, and that in itself created a bit of a schism among their own fans, the yeah. fact that they were taking sides against the leftists because a lot of Kress fans were also getting beat up by the Nazis. So yeah. it was kind of a, a, f- a total, total fucking mess. Okay. It was a chaos. It was chaos. Now, Bloody Revolutions is a great song. It's a long song. goes on over five minutes, I think. Uh, and uh, it just talks about this, about how both sides are fucked up. Okay? You should listen to it. It's a good one. But um, a free flexi-disc single was given away by the fanzine Toxic Graffiti called Rival, Tribal, Rebel, Revel. And it was a commentary about the Conway Hall incident as well. And this was followed by another single called Nagasaki Nightmare. And on the flip side was Big A, Little A. The strongly anti-nuclear lyrics of the first song, Nagasaki Nightmare, um, reinforced the kind of fold-out art that was on the single. Okay, yeah. it had a uh, an article by a guy named Mike Holderness of Peace News Magazine. And it connected, the article connected atomic power to the industry that makes nuclear weapons. Okay. Yeah. So they were kind of saying like, we don't want nuclear power because it's just going to be used to make nuclear weapons. Now, it also auth- offered a featured kind of poster style fold out map of all the nuclear facilities in the UK. This was just a single. It yeah. folded out. Okay. Yeah. Now, the other side of the record, big A, little a, was a statement about the band's anti statist and individual anarchist philosophy. Yeah, and crazy, basically, man. they had a motto. They had, yeah, P- Penny, Penny Rimbaud had a motto. It was be exactly who you want to be, do what you want to do. I am he, and she is she, but you're the only you. I kind of like that, okay? Now, in, in 81, Crasswood released their third album called Penis Envy. Oh, yeah. And this album... Penis going around. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, they caught a lot of shit for that. Now, this album was a departure from the hardcore punk stuff that they were doing in the last two albums. It yeah. featured more complex musical arrangements and female-only vocals by Eve Libertine and Joy DeVivere. Now, yeah, Steve this Ignorant... this was really like a punk album. This was more like a rock and roll no. album,
0: almost.
1: It, it it was, was a lot of spoken word. It was a lot of yeah, it was, was a lot of well, stuff like, the women's album. It read more like a poetry album no. Yeah, yeah. Now Steve Ignorant is credited on the album saying yeah. not on this recording. <laughs> they actually said he, he's not on it.
0: That's so, pretty funny.
1: The album Yeah, the album addressed these feminist issues. Uh, uh, they attacked this the marriage in general. Uh, sexual repression, um, it, it dealt with all these issues. Now, Steve Ignorant wasn't happy about it. He, he you know <laughs> felt he was losing his band, but there's not much he could do about it. So the last track on penis Envy was a parody of a love song and was kind of it was titled "Our Wedding. It was just a parody of a 70s <laughs> sappy kind of love song. And it, it was made of, this is a, this is a funny, a funny hoax. It was made available as a white flexi disc to readers of Loving, which was a teenage romance magazine. Uh, Cress tricked the magazine to offering the disc posing as creative recording and sound services. Get it? Creative recording yes. and sound yes. services. Okay. A- now uh, Loving magazine <laughs> fell for this and they accepted the offer. Um, it was. It would. They told their readers that they would. They would. That the flexi disc would make your wedding day just that bit extra special. <laughs> <laughs> so a ta- <laughs> now a tabloid controversy resulted when News of the World, which is a big outlet uh, media outlet there, exposed the host the hoax and said that the originating album was. Too Obscene to Print, the title of it, Penis Envy, okay? (laughs) Now, despite that, the band broke no laws. It was just a hoax. They couldn't couldn't get arrested for this, but the magazine was pissed off. So Penis Envy ended up getting banned by HMV stores. And also, HMV was a big, like, tower records type thing. Also, Manchester police charged a record store with displaying obscene articles for publication by having the The album album in the window. That's pretty funny. Um, a judge ruled against Crass in the in the first court case, uh, but the ruling would be overturned in a court of appeals. The only thing was they found that the track Beta Motel was obscene, so they were they were in trouble for that, not for the whole album. The band's fourth LP, 1982's double set called Christ, the album took almost a year to record, and what happened? was there was a lot of infighting going on in the band and the direction they were going uh, Steve ignorant was you know not getting along with some of the people in the band um, the Falklands war had come and gone it was only a few months long um, and this kind of caused crash to rethink their approach to record making uh, they were kind of like behind the times almost like so many things had happened in that year that they were making yeah. this album that they felt by the time it came out, everything was kind of redundant. Like it already yeah, it was done. no need to okay. do it. Yeah, yeah. But that that was a, a a problem with this album. It's a good album, but the, the the Falklands War, and then the riots that were happening in Bristol and Brixton already happened. So you know they, they were embarrassed by the fact that they they didn't get this out in time. Now, afterwards, any subsequent crash releases such as. Uh, how does it feel to be the mother of a thousand dead and sleep farming in the Falklands? And the next album called Yes, Sir, I Will, they kind of saw the band go to a back to the basics kind of thing and issue yeah. specific kind of tactical responses to anything going on. Okay. They had, a, if something came on, they didn't like it. They had a song for it. Okay. Yeah. Now they would anonymously produce 20,000 copies of a flexi disc live recording. Of the song "Sheep Farming in the Falklands," of which copies were inserted randomly into the sleeves of other artists' records. Okay, <laughs> what they did is they 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 had they had connections at Rough Trade Records, which was a distri- distribution company, and they they were sticking these flexi discs discs in to like you know a, a fucking Led Zeppelin record or you know whatever, Anyhow, just throw yeah. it in there. Okay, anything, yeah. And since the early days of the band, they were involved in the stencil graffiti scene uh, in the London subway system. Now, often messages from crass songs uh, would be stenciled in. Uh, they also, like I said before, they were involved with a lot of like squat arranging. In yeah. December 1982, the band helped coordinate a 24-hour squat in the empty West London Zigzag Club. They were also involved with Greenpeace in 1983 and 1984. And some of these Greenpeace rallies kind of foreshadow what we see today at anti-globalist rallies. Okay, very similar. Um, For the last two years of its existence, Kress became a band divided. The original idea of peace and nonviolence, the band promoted that. It kind of fell away to a belief of maybe more violent ideas, but only to some band members. Um, About half the band, by the time the Falklands War and the ensuing riots in Brixton and other neighborhoods uh, in London, caused some members to feel violence was necessary. Now, Penny Rimbaud still believed in peace, and the next release under the crass name was called Acts of Love. And it was an album of classical music settings with 50 poems all written by Rimbaud, uh, Steve Ignorant didn't sing on this album, and they used Lib- Eve Libertine mostly. Um, another crass hoax at that time was known as Thatchergate. And yep. it was a recording of an apparently overheard conversation between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And they, the way they edited it is they made it appear that Reagan and Thatcher were having a telephone conversation. And pieces of the two world leaders, real voices, were used. Okay? And they made it look like they were talking about the sinking of the, the ship, the Sheffield, okay? Yeah. Uh, and during the Falklands War, the, the Argentinians sunk one, sunk one of their ships and, yeah. and a thousand people died. That's why you have that song, How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of a Thousand Dead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they also supposedly in the conversation said that Europe would be the target for nuclear weapons in the event of a World War III situation with the Soviet Union. It was a hoax. They used pieces of the voices to come up with this conversation. So copies were leaked to the press of these tapes during the 1983 general election in England. And the U.S. State Department and the British govern- government actually blamed the KGB. They thought the KGB was behind this, and it wasn't. And the, the tape was made anonymously to the newspaper. Uh, the observer
0: didn't. And the KGB observer
1: managed to, to link band? it to Kress. Yeah, didn't the KGB wind up talking to the woman Uh, yeah, they. Yeah, I think, I, 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 think <laughs> I. think somebody that might have been a KGB person spoke to the band, but that that it wasn't arranged by the KGB. Kress did this. Okay. Now, previously uh, classified uh, documents that have now been made public since 2014, okay, uh, yeah. revealed that Thatcher herself was personally aware of the tape and that Crass was sometimes talked about in her cabinet. That's how seriously they were taking this. So they always said, Crass always said, that they would break up in the Orwellian year of 1984. But when the year came, there were a lot of difficulties within the band that made the breakup not go so easily. The single How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of 1500 Dead was brought up under obscenity charges yep. the band who had a lot to say felt that they were being silenced by the dark powers that they were protesting against so the band also had incurred heavy legal expenses for the penis envy prosecution and combined with basically exhaustion and band tensions, uh they were all living together everything kind of took its toll And on July 7th, 1984, the band played a gig for Striking Miners at the Aberdare in Wales. On the return trip, guitarist N.A. Palmer left the band. And then the band pretty pretty much split up right after that. Uh, The group's final release as Crass was called The Ten Notes on a Summer's Day. And it was a 12 inch single release in 1986. Uh, Crass Records closed for good in 1992. Its final release was called Christ's Reality Asylum, and it was a 90-minute cassette of Penny Rimbaud reading the essay he had written in 1977 that gave him the impetus to form Crass. Wow. Now, over the years since then, uh, most of the Crass catalogs have been re-released and remastered. It sounds better now than it ever did back in the 70s and early 80s, but the band has never reunited. Um, in November 2007, Steve Ignorant performed the whole album, The Feeding of the 5,000, uh, live at a place called Shepherd's Bush Empire a Club, okay? Wow. And he used selected, selected guests to come up on stage. Nobody from Crass was involved. Uh, initially, Penny Rimbaud was not going to let him do this. He was going to sue, but he let him do it. He said he felt like Steve had a right to do it, even though he hadn't written all these songs but he felt he had a right to do it, even though it was kind of like against the Crest yeah, ethics. Yeah. Okay, so he let him do it. But in 2011, Steve Ignorant went on an international tour entitled The Last Supper. And he performed Crest material for a tour that ended on November 19th at the same club as before Shepherd's Bush Empire. And Penny Rimbaud joined him on stage that night. He played drums. And they did, um, they did, a. Few songs like Do They Owe Us a Living? Just like they did it when they were called Stormtrooper, where it was drums and vocals. So everything kind of went full circle, full circle 34 years later, right? Yeah. And that's the story. Um, that's, you know, that's incredible.
0: They,
1: yeah. I mean, they left the mark. They weren't around that long. They were around for seven years. They left the mark. Unfortunately, they didn't play here all that much, but they, they, uh, you know, that logo and, and what they sang about, especially on the first album, resonates with anybody into punk today. They all all find their way to crash. At some point, they check it out. Yeah, they were hardcore.
0: So they what'd you think of quick. it?
1: I'm that not hearing them fantastic. before. Maybe. I, I
0: love that first album. I love that first uh, 5,000. Yeah, me too. me too. My me listen too. to that it was fantastic. Because you sent me the stuff, but I was all lumped yeah. up from... Um, yeah. Cause I took the um, antivirus thing the
1: <laughs> up yesterday.
0: I don't even remember talking to you at one point.
1: Yeah, we were texting for a little while after I sent you that shit. Yeah, and I was I was done. I was like, you, took, the, your sec, you took your you took your you took your second vaccine, right? Yeah, the second one. So I'm pretty much done with it.
0: Now it's time to bitch about how I want to take yeah. off the mask. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So next week, we're going to be talking about Eric Burden and the Animals. Ooh, that's uh, a great be good. 60s band. Great, great, interesting story. Everybody knows them for House of the Rising Sun and We Gotta song. Get Out of This Place. And don't let me be misunderstood, but there's a great story with them. Eric Burden is one of the, for me, he's one of the greatest vocalists of the 60s. Um, um, it'll be a good show. Uh, we've got uh, Curtis Mayfield coming up the week after that. And uh, I believe we're going to be talking about Oi Music and the girl punk band, The Slits, at the end of the month. So a lot of good shit coming up. Ooh, yeah, a lot of good shit coming up. A lot of good shit. So where where can we find you, Rob? So you can find me anywhere on
0: Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter at Getting Lumped Up. Just put Getting Lumped Up, and you can find me. And Mike, where can we find you?
1: I'm on Instagram, rockermike 212 I'm on Clout Hub under Rocker Mike. I'm on Parlor under Rocker Mike. I'm on MeWe under Rocker Mike. I am on Facebook under Michael Baker. And then we have the Rock Show Podcast group page featuring me and you, Rob Rossi and Rocker Mike. Um, I started a new thing today, which is, uh, well, a new thing recently, which is. A Wall of Sound song of the day because we're going to be doing a show about Phil Spector soon. Uh, also, I'm thinking about, and I haven't mentioned this to you yet, Rob. Uh, I'm thinking about having a Instagram page just dedicated to my Rastafari beliefs and reggae. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Rocker Mike Two One Two Ja. I'm we to be starting good. that soon. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, you know, it, it's going to be more spiritual. It's not going to be for everybody, but you know, I'll, I'll let everybody know when it's up, and uh, hopefully by the time this is aired, it'll be up. So, Rocker yeah. Mike two one two ja, check that out. You can always Mike, private
0: message me if you want to talk about it. This show's not going to end to May third, but this is a special preview to people on YouTube and on yes. and on Facebook. So you got a advanced show before you even. That's
1: true. That's true. So everybody's getting
0: it. Yeah. Everybody's getting a little preview. That's right. A little preview.
1: And for that,
0: guys, we'll see you next week. And remember, don't get drunk, get lumped up, and we'll see you next week. Get only here on The Rock Show, yeah, on The Rock Show, yeah, on The Rock Show, don't tell your friends and everyone you know, let's get lumped up on The Rock Show.